Welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books, Week 55, and the final play in this series by Shakespeare, one that has deeply influenced me. Although it is not my favourite of Shakespeare's plays, a status reserved for Hamlet and Twelfth Night, it is firmly in my top five, and it has some of my favourite images, lines and ideas. It is probably the play that, having written many essays about it and taught it now seven or eight times, that I know best. To refresh my memory of Othello, I have had the great pleasure this week of listening to the 2007 production from the Donmar Warehouse. It's available on Audible. It was a production I longed to see, but tickets were impossible to buy. The cast was amazing. Chiwetel Ejiofor as Othello, Ewan McGregor as Iago, Kelly Riley as Desdemona, Tom Hiddleston as Cassio. I had seen Hiddleston performing Shakespeare live just before he joined the cast of Othello. He had been in a cheek-by-jowl production of Cymbeline, which toured to, amongst other places, our local theatre in Brussels. He was electrifying. As soon as he walked on stage, he had the audience in the palm of his hand. The production of what is unquestionably a tough play to stage was altogether good, but Hiddleston was magnetic, and it is clear from the recording of the Donmar Othello that his Cassio was just as engaging. But then he was up against significant competition, particularly from Ewan McGregor, who is fascinating as a cobra readying to strike in the role of Iago. I first fell in love with Othello when I read all four great tragedies for an extra English class that I took in the year I studied English literature at A-level. I was already studying Lear, which was one of my set texts. I know it's not on this list, despite its greatness. I then read Macbeth, Othello and Hamlet. Although Hamlet was, as mentioned, then and remains my favourite Shakespeare play, there was something about Othello that enthralled me. The language is so rich, so evocative. And then there is Iago. As well as Shakespeare, I had begun to read Jacobean tragedies, learnt about the stereotype or archetype of the malcontent, the outsider, the misanthrope, the Machiavel, Bozzola from the Duchess of Malfi, Vindici from the Revengers tragedy, and Iago are, in my view, the finest exemplars of this archetype. Cynical, stifled, furious with their fellow men and women, capable of seeing only the worst in human nature. Shakespeare dissects us humans with such clarity. The drivers of madness, insomnia for Macbeth and his wife, Lear's realisation as a parent that the children we think are so devoted actually care nothing for us, Hamlet's loss of his father. And then there is Iago. He oozes malice, but the more we hear from him, the more muddled he appears. He has so many causes in his own mind for his filthy behaviour. Certainly, Othello's race underlies much of his hatred, but then there is Cassio's promotion over him, the vague rumour that his wife Emilia and Othello may implausibly have had sex, his desire for money, influence and power, his obsession with control and manipulation of others. Ultimately, it comes down to Iago's own self-loathing. He detests himself. Ironically, Othello perceives him as honest, reliable, trustworthy, but Iago knows his own true nature, hates it, and has nothing but contempt for anyone 
who cannot see through the bluff, straight-talking, wise-cracking persona he assumes. In truth, Iago scarcely needs a reason or an explanation for his malevolent behaviour, his manipulations of Rodrigo, Othello, Cassio, his own wife. Sometimes the obvious reason is the true reason. He says clearly, I am not what I am. This is true. He is dislocated from himself, from who he wants to be, how he perceives himself. In a twisted way, Iago is at least in front of both Rodrigo and the audience, as honest as any human can be about themselves, his flaws, his malice, his disgust for his fellow humans. Despite, or perhaps because of his contempt, he often says the things that we may think but feel we cannot say. There is a moment which, in Elizabethan terms, must have horrified a contemporary audience. Rodrigo invokes virtue and Iago dismisses it. Virtue? A fig! Tis in ourselves that we are thus or thus. Our bodies are our gardens, to the which our wills are gardeners. So often across Shakespeare's canon, the sonnets, the comedies, the tragedies, the histories, any mention of a garden is a reality check, a moment of perception and truth sewn into the fabric of the plays. So when Iago gives voice to this virtually blasphemous thought that we humans are responsible for who and what we are, not God, that we plant, we tend, we harvest according to our wills, we need to pay attention to weigh his words carefully. Here, Iago subverts Shakespeare's standard trope of a garden as a place of cultivation, abundance, fertility and order. Instead, a garden is a place of exploitation, manipulation and false illusions. Iago celebrates modern qualities that we now admire, individuality, autonomy, agency. How can this be bad? And yet... He is determined to use these aspects of human nature for unqualified evil. This is going to seem a diversion, but bear with me. Last year, the neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky published a new book, Determinism, A Science of Life Without Free Will. For a taste of his argument, you could do worse than listen to Leading, the podcast where Alastair Campbell and Rory Stewart interview leaders and thinkers in a host of different fields. Cynically, I might say that interviews often arise from a desire to sell books or appeal to an electorate, but this does not diminish the quality of the interviews. I found Sapolsky's particularly interesting. I had read his book Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Our Worst, a couple of years ago, and found it both fascinating and comforting. Sapolsky certainly does not believe in agency, autonomy or individuality. He has not believed in free will since he was a precocious 13-year-old. Now 66, his extensive and important work in neuroendocrinology has served to embed this conviction ever more deeply. I'm going to simplify this wildly, but essentially Sapolsky's work has led him to the view that the causal elements that shape us, primarily genetics, but also environment and experience, are so powerful that however much we may believe we have choices, freedoms and moral responsibilities, the truth is that, in Sapolsky's view, those choices, freedoms and responsibilities are illusory. 
If this is the case, you could argue that Shakespeare, in presenting Iago as an unmitigated villain, espouses a determinist outlook. Iago has no choice but to exert his malign intentions. And the tragedy arises because Othello, his primary target, is also brought by experience, environment and his essential being, or in Sapolsky's view, his genetics, to a point where the impact of Iago's cunning and malice makes for an inevitable trajectory to destruction and death. This takes us back to the origins of modern tragedy, the Greek tradition which underpins so much modern tragedy, including Shakespeare, however cavalier he happens to be about the unities of time, place and action. Tragedies are intended to provide us with an outlet to purge us as we watch by invoking pity and terror, leading to a physical response and release, catharsis, as we respond to the tragic events we are seeing. More important than unities, more important than focusing the action on a man or woman of noble birth, is the way in which these tragedies unfold. They are the product of fate, of destiny, and there must be an inevitability to them. They must end in destruction. And as they unfold, whatever the accidents, the coincidences, the choices taken by the characters, we in the audience know that there is no escape, there is no alternative, there is no deus ex machina swooping in to save anyone. Shakespeare's other tragedies have supernatural elements. Ghosts in Hamlet and Macbeth, the witches in Lear, the elusive fool, the storm that breaks Lear's sanity, that to some extent propel the tragedy. But Othello is free of such stuff. The centre of the drama is Iago, the malevolent Machiavel, acting as puppet master. Iago's open espousal of knavery, his conjuring up of monsters, his swift decision to use Desdemona to destroy Othello, his materialism instructing his pawn, Rodrigo, put money in thy purse, his nihilism and twisted passions make him all too familiar to a modern audience. It is easy enough to recognise the determination to destroy, the predatory choices, the resolve and commitment to cruelty. But I think Sapolsky's approach is too exculpatory. The premise underlying Greek tragedy, and to some extent Shakespeare as well, is that we are witnessing options and models of response to catastrophe that have been dictated by forces greater than we humans can know or understand. Whether we call these forces gods or genetics, supernatural beings or accidents of environment and events, there is still an element of the unexpected, the inexplicable, the unpredictable, both in human nature and in nature itself. It is possible, as Laplace suggested in the 18th century, that if we knew everything, if we could understand everything about all the laws and rules that govern every aspect of scientific thought, we may yet discover that everything is determined, everything has a cause, and everything is destined to unfold in certain preordained ways. But we humans are not capable of knowing and understanding everything. We do not have the capacity 
and even our large language models, our ability to create an artificial intelligence that can then sustain itself without human intervention, does not have full access to all there is to be known. Ultimately, like the universe and beyond, what we cannot know is infinite. In the final scene of the play, we see two husbands murder their wives, first Othello, then Iago, who flees after stabbing Emilia. Iago is captured and brought before the remaining company, including Othello, who cannot speak directly to Iago but asks, Will you, I pray, demand that demi-devil why he hath ensnared my soul and body? Iago's final words in the play are his response. Demand me nothing. What you know, you know, from this time forth, I never will speak word. Using the evidence of what we have seen during the course of the play, Iago's asides and confidences to the audience, we do know more than Othello or Cassio, the two principal characters who have so far survived Iago's maleficence. Still, Iago's true motive is unknowable. However destined it may be, however predetermined, Iago's soliloquies are full of contradictory trivialities that conceal whatever his true motives may be. Coleridge wrote extensively about Iago and in a most convoluted fashion, but the essence of his view of Iago is that the character is malign, without motivation or motive. There is no rationale, no logic, no reason behind Iago's manipulations. Unlike other characters in the tragedies, Lear, Hamlet, Macbeth, flirting with madness or descending outright into imbalanced states of mind, Iago retreats. His soliloquies shrink, each one shorter than the next, until he reaches the point of silence. There is no explanation for his choices. He takes ownership of them.
metaphorical heart of the play. It is his love that brings him to disaster, but it is also his love that redeems him, at least in this member of the audience's eyes. Othello understands how he has been brought low by Iago and attempts to kill him, but then he remembers his own worth. I have done the state some service, and his own folly in destroying Desdemona. His last words are devoted to his murdered love. I kissed thee ere I killed thee, no way but this, killing myself, to die upon a kiss. Join me next week for a look at a writer who wrestled with loss and regret. Next week's book is The Collected Prose of Elizabeth Bishop.